This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another edition of the Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. Guys, sorry I missed you last week. I heard the podcast was an absolute catastrophe without me. Uh, it was it was tepid at best. Heard it went on unendingly. Also true. Our uh, our, our fifty two minute mark, our tacitly agreed upon fifty two minute mark. So I'm here to keep you in line this week. We had, we need we need someone to rein us in. So trade deadline. Let's talk about it. As with everything else in the world this year, we didn't know exactly what to expect. I know. Heading into it, there was some thought that it was not going to be that active. And then as we got closer, then there was some talk that sounded like it would, in fact, be pretty active. It turned out to be an active deadline. There weren't nearly as many prospects traded as usual, or at least elite level. Uh, But there's the caveat that there are a bunch of players to be named later involved in these deadline deals. So it's a, it's a little hard to gauge at this point just what the fallout is in terms of prospects who got traded. But we do know that at this point, only one top 100 prospect was dealt. And that was Taylor Trammell, who was also the top prospect traded in a deadline deal last year. And looking back over the past several years, that number is down pretty significantly Last year, there were five top 100 prospects traded. In 2018, only two, but then three years prior to that, there were seven, eight, nine top 100 prospects traded. So an average of six over the past five deadlines. Um, what do you think contributed to that, that drop-off this year in the number of elite prospects that were dealt? I think there were a, a couple of reasons. I, th- I think the biggest probably was more teams are making the playoffs, so there's less desperation. There's an extra round of the playoffs. So even though you're going to get to the playoffs, you aren't necessarily going to cash in your best prospects when in, you know, best of three series, it's not quite a coin flip. But, like, you know, we're going to see some upsets in the first round where teams that are some of the best teams in baseball are going to, you know, lose a best of three series and be done in the playoffs. So I think just because it's kind of an uncertain, goofy year, Teams didn't want to mortgage their future. And at the same time, I wonder if those prospects maybe carried a little less value than they would in a normal year because you can't see them play. Like, you don't know what they're up to. You aren't gauging them against minor league competition. You can't know for sure exactly how ready they are for the big leagues. If you, you know, I think the reports were that two-thirds of the teams engaged in trading video from alternate camp, but, like, you can't scout anybody. So even, you know, I, I think teams are probably more reluctant to give those guys up. And, 
you know, maybe a little bit more than usual given the odd year. And I think teams were probably, you know, well, I mean, they want young talent, not going to necessarily buy into those guys as much as they would in a normal year when you could gauge their, their, their progress. Um, so just kind of a, <laughs> kind of a weird deal. And, you know, in the, in the top 100 prospect didn't even get traded on, on deadline day. It happened with the Padres and, you know, the biggest trade on deadline day happened in the morning and then it was kind of quiet after that. You know, it, it's, it's interesting. Cause yeah, the, 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 there weren't as many top guys, but, but I have to be honest, I, overall, even if there weren't as many like bigger name prospects or higher level prospects, there was more activity than I was expecting. Like I, I thought there was going to be virtually nothing, but, you know, some of it, you know, because of the variables that you laid out there, Jim, you know, uh, even if you're sharing video and you get to see video, it's not like you're getting, you know, regular scouting reports over the course of a whole season on a guy, you know, a guy like Taylor Trammell. Okay. People are familiar with, you know, you know, you kind of know what you're getting. You didn't necessarily need to see, what he he's up to um but you know it it uh those alternate camps you know half the time they're finishing the games that they're playing with a pitching machine or there's no one playing left field or you have a farm director playing second base or you know all sorts of like crazy things have been happening because they don't have enough players so even if you see the video it's not it, it it's not the same as as what you know as jim pointed out as you'd have in a normal year or so uh, but um there were more teams that, you know, there was more activity overall, even if they were smaller deals involving not as highly regarded prospects than, than I was anticipating. So we ranked the, every prospect who was traded dating back to the beginning of the season. And with Tremel being the only top 100 prospect who was traded, he's at the top of the list kind of by default. The next two in our rankings, both went to the Indians from the Padres and Gabriel Arias and Joey Cantillo. Kevin Smith is number four on the list, traded from the Mets to the Orioles for Miguel Castro. Number five, Stuart Fairchild, who went to the D-backs from the Reds. Number six, Taryn Vaber went to the Orioles from the Rockies, number seven, Owen Miller, also to the Indians. So the Indians got three out of the top 10 prospects who were traded at the deadline. Edward Olivares went to the Royals a couple days ago, Trevor Rosenthal. He's number eight on the list. Number nine, Jason Rosario went to the Red Sox, uh, along with Hudson Potts from the Padres, who is number 10 on the list. So... You know, one thing that jumps out there in addition to the Indians getting three of the top 10 and the Orioles got a couple of the players that I just mentioned in the top 10 also got the player that we ranked 11th on the list, Tyler Nevin. So they got three out of the top 11. But I think probably the biggest thing that jumps out there is the fact that almost every player in the top 10 that was traded was traded from the Padres and yet somehow still didn't really manage to make a dent in their, their formidable farm system. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've talked numerous podcasts about how deep the Padres system is and, you know, they're getting to the point where they're going to start having a 40 man roster crunch in terms of being able to protect everybody. And it makes sense to, to trade depth, but you know, they, 
you know, they didn't trade Mackenzie Gore. They didn't trade CJ Abrams. They didn't trade Luis Patino. They didn't trade Luis Camposano. You know, I think I, I've already forgotten where Arias ranked on their list. Maybe seventh. Seventh. Yeah. Um, I know I, I actually gave him like a down ballot vote for the top 100. We were doing that in the preseason, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mean, look, I mean, okay. Arias is really, really intriguing as a, I mean, you know, I mean, he's a legit shortstop, you know, who could be a 25 homer shortstop, <laughs> but the last time I checked the Potters have a pretty good shortstop in Fernando Tatis Jr. And they got CJ Abrams. So like realistically, where was Arias going to play? Like he, he projects nicely at third base, but I think Manny Machado is going to play third base in San Diego for a long time. So, um, you know, the, the guys they traded while they were intriguing, it, it was a lot of guys kind of from the middle of their, their top 30 list um, and not necessarily guys who were, I mean, the good prospects, but not necessarily, you know, in the top spots of their depth chart of the future just because they have so much talent in, in that organization. So, you know, I, I think it made sense to do what they did. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't know what you guys thought. But let's talk about the Clevenger trade for a second. I mean, Mike Clevenger, I think, unless I'm missing somebody, I don't think I am, far and away the best player traded since the season's begun. Um, you know, Starling Marte, I guess, would be number two. And it was also a situation where the Indians, you know, <laughs> in a normal year where we don't have the pandemic and Clevenger doesn't lie about going out with Zach Plezak, um, and then fly back on the team and enrage his whole team. And basically probably had to be traded if they don't want to lose the locker room. They probably don't even trade him. But, you know, they traded a guy who could be a difference-making starter. And not only did they get, you know, three of the top seven prospects who changed hands in Arias, you know, Cantillo, who's a polished, deceptive lefty with a high floor who'll probably be in the back of the rotation in a couple of years, and Owen Miller, who can really hit and jump to double A in his first full pro season and I think could either be a starting second baseman or a, a, a you know utility man who who really hits they also got two guys who don't count as prospects but you certainly wouldn't call them established big leaguers and they're both former top 100 guys in Cal Quantrill and Josh Naylor and you look at what the Indians can do with pitching you know maybe they can get Cal Quant- you know the, the Potters got Quantrill to be an effective reliever you know, this guy's former eighth overall pick in the draft. The Potters didn't draft him to be a reliever. Maybe the Indians can make a starter out of him again. You know, maybe they can get consistent production out of Josh Naylor, who's got an interesting bat. I mean, they got, I don't think they're going to hit on all those guys, but they got, you know, five interesting young guys with upside. And, and they even got Austin Hedges, who came yeah, really say, one of the best defensive catchers. Yeah, yeah, one of the best defensive catchers in the big league. So I, I thought, you know, A.J. Preller was at the heart of, of all the most interesting trades, it seemed, um, or, or most of them. But I, I, I thought that was an interesting trade, and, and I, I really liked it for both sides. I mean, if I'm the Padres, I gave up six players who are all interesting, but none of whom is a key, key part of my team to get a guy who could be a difference-making starter in the playoffs. I, I really like that trade a lot, and I'll be curious to see who the – the player to be named later in that deal is that they got, you know, and they also got Greg Allen, but I, I thought that was a trade that could, could really pan out for both sides. Yeah. It's one of those that they may go down as a, uh, as a, you know, one of good baseball trade as they, as they like to say, because the fact of the matter is they're not just getting Mike Clevenger for now, you know, he's not a free agent until what, 2023, I think. Um, so they're going to have Mike Clevenger, at or near the top of their rotation for the next couple of years, if he, 
you know, continues to pitch the way he, he has, you know, so uh, this isn't a, a rental for, for uh, a couple of months. You know, you mentioned Starling Marte being the second best player traded. He's got an option year that uh, the Diamondbacks clearly had decided they were not going to exercise for twelve and a half million dollars. So that could be a rental um, trade. So you know, in terms of the return that that teams got, um, you know, then the Indians are in this was the, in this weird position where they're one of the best teams in the American League, and then you just traded their, you know, sort of number one starter away. Uh, so they got some big league help back in return. A really interesting trade and. And, you know, we talk about when we try to identify teams who could make trades at the deadline, which is always tricky, you often look at well, who do they have, you know, at, at the top of their system in terms of their top, their best prospects, you know, could that get a lot? And then you look to see if, if guys are, are blocked, like Arias is blocked at shortstop by Fernando Tatis. The Indians in, in, in getting a guy like Arias, I think, have set themselves up with a few middle infielders in their system now. So that if they do eventually feel it necessary to trade Francisco Lindor away, say next year, by that point, you know, either he or if Tyler Freeman you know, can play short, uh, you know, they, they have some options or, or even Chang, uh, they have some options for players to fill in at shortstop, uh, if not to take over, you know, full, you know, and establish themselves full time uh, when and if that time comes. So it, I think in both instances, <clears throat> the trades were for right now, but also with an eye on what's going to happen in the next couple of years. While the Indians trade made a lot of sense to me, how how shocked were you or surprised, maybe shocked a little strong, by the, the Mariners-Padres trade and what the Mariners were able to get for, you know, Austin Nola, you know, plus a couple of hard throwing, if inconsistent and or injured relievers. I mean, they got Taylor Trammell, they got Andres Munoz, they got Ty France, and I'm forgetting the fourth player in the deal who was, um, I will come up with it in a second. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, um, it's interesting. You know, Taylor Trammell is, you know, he's a friend of the podcast. Uh, you know, you start to wonder when a guy gets treated twice in two years uh, and then through no fault of his own, he actually played well for the Padres down the stretch after the trade. We all know he's got tools, hasn't always been consistent with them. You, you start to think, well, are we overvaluing him? But we'll wait and, you know, I think we'll have to wait and see. I think the Mariners did a very nice job of adding to an, you know, a, what was already an improved system based on the, the trades, you know, after, you know, when Jerry DePoto sort of flipped the switch from, selling prospects to buying prospects they've they've revamped that farm system in a hurry and uh, so between the trades and the drafts you know the, this is the and we'll touch on this a little bit later but their farm system is is greatly improved and they've just been able to to bring in even more with that deal i was just amazed i mean austin ola is a guy who is a, a light hitting infielder that they signed as a minor league free agent after the 2018 season and if you told me two years ago that there'd be a trade where the headliners on each side were Austin Ola and Taylor Trammell, I would have said, come on, like, how is that? I, I could not have fathomed how that might have been possible. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, I like Trammell as a prospect. He's number 60 in the top 100, or maybe he's number 59 because I think Brendan Rodgers graduated, just graduated. You know, I, I do 
wonder about him a little bit. You know, Trammell's best year in the minors was in 2017. You know, he, he is tooled up, but he's, you know, he's never hit more than 13 homers in a season. He played a lot more left field than center field. So, I mean, there are some questions with him. I don't think his value is as high as it was, say, two years ago. But he is very talented. But, I mean, I also like Andres I'd rather have – I know Andres Munoz is coming back from Tommy John surgery. But I, I think Andres Munoz, you got more years to control. And I like his future better than Austin Adams and, and Dan Altavilla. And even Ty France and Luis Torrens are, are interesting kind of kind of bench guys. I, I thought that was – I understood what the Padres were trying to do. Um, you know, they were looking to upgrade at catcher. Um, and Austin Nola has played very well. But I wonder if, it, you know, two or three years down the road, we're going to look at that and say, wow, I can't believe right. how one-sided that trade looks. Yeah, and Tramiel's, you know, he's still only 22. You know, so that should, you know, that should be noted. I think one thing that, you know, adds uh, to Nola's value is how inexpensive he is, right? Yeah, so the Padres, uh, interestingly, you know, just really flipped the switch from going from a team that was – Porting prospects, and you look back uh, over the past few deadlines, and last year they got the highest ranked prospect that was traded at the deadline, and Tramel. The previous year they got the highest ranked prospect who was traded at the deadline, and Francisco Mejia. And then back in 2016, they once again got the highest ranked prospect who was traded at the deadline in uh, Espinosa. You know, so they built up that farm system largely through these deadline deals, and then in the matter of just one year, are now you know with this short season and uh, the way that things have have come along for them are, are now suddenly in the, uh, on the opposite end of that. Well, we've been talking for a while about how you know they have had you know baseball's best farm system our rankings for you know several rankings running, and we're on the verge of contending, and now they're contending. They've you know, they, they, they've they done the complete 180. And I mean, then they're a team that, I mean, is poised to do a lot of damage in the playoffs, I think. You know, you add Clevenger to, to a rotation that already included Denilson, LeMay. You know, Chris Paddock hasn't had a great year, but I think he's he's better than he's than he's pitched. I mean, that's a pretty formidable threesome. They've got some good bullpen arms. And they've, they've you know, they've got, you know, I think they're leading the National League in runs. Um, so, I mean, that, that's a team that's poised to do a lot of damage. And as we alluded to earlier, I mean, you, you've only seen a little bit of Luis Patino. I mean, he's been a reliever. You know, he, he hasn't, you know, better start. You know, Mackenzie Gore's coming. C.J. Abrams is coming. Luis Camposano is, is the catcher of the, the not-too-distant future. Robert Hassel was the best high school hitter in this year's draft, and they got him too. I mean, they, they've got some impact guys coming, you know, as well. You know, they're, they're going to continue to get better, I think. I think one of the best ways I saw someone put it is, you know, with what they did now is they uh, they're going for it, but they didn't go all in. Right. They didn't just mortgage the entire future for a run now, you know, which, uh, you know, sort of tip your cap for their ability to bring in help for them to make a run this year without really disrupting overall the their sort of nod to younger players the young nucleus that's at the big league level, they didn't disrupt that while improving themselves and, and, and sort of trying to set themselves up to make a, a run in the postseason. Another uh, trade that they were involved in sending 
Jason Rosario and Hudson Potts to the Red Sox for Mitch Moreland. What did you guys think of uh, what the Red Sox were, were able to get there? I thought that was good value for the Red Sox. I, I do their list. You know, Moreland, you know, it's, I still have contract deadline, uh, de- contract details bouncing off the head. I believe Moreland's contract is up at the end of this year anyway, if I'm not mistaken. So even though he's been useful to the Red Sox, it's not like he's, you know, necessarily, you know, you know he's 34 years old. He's going to be part of their their long-term future. I guess there's a, a team option on him. But, you know, Rosario, I, I actually like Rosario more than Potts. I, I, I flipped the rankings from where we had him on the Padres. Rosario, both those guys have been pushed pretty aggressively by the Padres. Rosario was it was in high class A last year at age 19. He was the third youngest regular in the league. He's constantly put up, you know, good high on good on base percentages. He's a solid runner. He's a solid center fielder. You know, I, I think he's going to be at least an average hitter. There's some power in there too. I mean, he's a potential you know, he's got a chance to be an everyday center fielder, you know, left-handed hitter, still only 20 years old. You know, Potts, I'm not the biggest Hudson Potts fan. I don't know, Jonathan, if it's a little prospect fatigue from watching him two years in a row in the in the fall league. You know, he, he's he's one of those guys who, you know, I said this about Taylor Trammell too. His best year was 2017 in the minors. He and Fernando Tatis Jr. were the first 18-year-olds to hit 20 homers in the Midwest League, which is, I think, the toughest place to hit in the full-season minors. In, in three decades, but Potts has really leveled off and struggled since then. I just, I, I don't, I think he's a, a mediocre defender at third. And I just don't know if he's going to hit enough for that power to play. So I, I'm probably a little bit lower on Hudson Potts than some guys, but I think to get Rosario and Hudson Potts for a 34 year old first baseman uh, for a team that's got a lot of, <laughs> a lot of issues right now. Um, I, I thought that was a, a pretty good value for the Red Sox. Yeah, it was. And, and Potts is, you know, one of the things that's concerning is that he doesn't, he hasn't really made any plate discipline selection approach at the plate improvements. And that's why I think you've seen the numbers kind of continue to, to dip. Now, he moved quickly, right? So, you know, he was in double A last year. He struggled in the fall league at age 20. You know, and this, he was 21 this year. He turns 22 at the end of October. So is there time? Yeah, there's 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 time, but you, you know there, there's some work that is going to need to be done in terms of his approach. And if that doesn't happen, then uh, you know then the trade doesn't seem as good. Uh, but it's certainly worth taking a flyer on on a, on a guy like that who does have you know raw power that you can't teach. Uh, so if you can teach him to be a little more selective. Uh, and understand the zone a little bit better, then maybe they'll end up uh, getting more than they thought. One other deal I wanted to ask you guys about, Archie Bradley going from the D-backs to the Reds for Stuart Fairchild and Josh Van Meter. Uh, what do you think about what the D-backs were able to get for Bradley there? I don't have Archie Bradley's contract in front of me. How many more years do they have him for, or is, it, or is this a rental? He's, I think he becomes a free agent after two more years. So that's funny. I was talking to someone with the Reds after the trade who just plainly said that they thought that Stuart Fairchild is better than people think he is. And that might be, but I think at best he's a, a solid player. Uh, maybe he's a starter for a non-competitive team and a really good fourth outfielder for uh you know for a team that's competing 
Um, you know, so I think, you know, the, once upon a time, relievers like Archie Bradley got a lot more than that, um, in, you know, in terms of, uh, of return. So I guess it's going to depend on what Stuart Fairchild ends up becoming uh, in, in terms of evaluating that trade. Uh, you know, I think he's a, he's a solid player, but, n- but not a spectacular one. So I'm like, I, I'm kind of slightly ambivalent or indifferent about the return. I thought it was okay. You know, and maybe that's what the market for the Archie Bradley's of the world, you know, were this, this deadline season. And I misspoke, Jonathan. He, he'll be a free agent, I believe, after the 2021 season. You know, he's arbitration eligible, and I guess they just decided they didn't want to pay for his last year of arbitration. But uh, All right. Well, so, I mean, that I mean, it makes a slight difference in terms of years of control, but they do have him for another full season. So, I mean, I think it's a pretty good trade for the, for the Reds, you know, if they feel that they can sort of try to make a run in this extended playoff system. I think the uh, the – Archie Bradley in my mind is, is more of the uh, Archie Bradley of 2017. As I look at the numbers, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's just been okay. Yeah. He's dropped off considerably since then. I mean, he's been good, but in 2000, in 2017, he was dominant and he's just been, you know, good, but not, not that same kind of difference maker that he was in 2017. So, um, as always, as we come out of the trade deadline, we re-rank the farm systems. And, uh, you know, usually this is happening uh, a month earlier and coincides with our mid-season re-rank of all the top 30 prospect lists and top 100 prospect lists. But we're working on a farm system re-rank now and you guys are in the process of doing that and we don't want to get too deep into the conversation of which farm systems are where but again yet again with the strangeness of this season uh it's a little different than usual right not not as much uh movement not as much to base movement of these teams on yeah it's i i, I was saying before it's it's yet another thing that covid has ruined in 2020 that when we were doing the rankings we were, we're i guess we're still finalizing them but they're they're pretty much done Jonathan and i both kind of noted that like there really wasn't that much different from the beginning of the season that the teams that got the biggest boost were teams that had picks at the very top of the draft and got elite players out of the draft you know we noted there weren't that you know there was one top 100 guy who changed hands and even you know Taylor Trammell isn't the highest profile new acquisition by the Mariners because they, they drafted Emerson Hancock sixth overall and he ranks ahead of them. So basically the rankings were pretty much everybody stayed the same. You moved up if you had a premium draft pick and you moved down if you had significant guy graduate. There's been a couple of those, but it was, I don't know, Jonathan, I was, I, I always enjoy kind of looking at the farm systems. It takes me a couple hours to go through and move them around. And I, <laughs> I guess I'm really selling this story, huh? I, I just, when I was doing the rankings this time, I was like, wow, it's just like, it's so much of its status quo from the sprint. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it, so much of it was static, just like we didn't, you know, when we re-ranked top 100 in the team list, we didn't move guys around uh, because there was no 
data, right? Like no one's played really outside of the very small sample size of guys who were in the, in the big leagues and maybe hearing a little bit anecdotally that, you know, Jared Kelnick is crushing the ball at alternate camp for the Mariners, you know, that sort of thing. So by the same token, there was not a whole lot we could do in terms of moving guys around. So Jim is, is right. It's really, you know, premium draft pick. Maybe you got, you move up a little bit more if you had like a really good draft and added to your depth, you know, combination of a solid draft with a couple of interesting trades may have helped you. Uh, no one traded away prospects to the extent that it was really going to damage where they were uh, as we, as we talked about. So it, yeah, this was not as a, a dynamic an exercise as it's been in, in uh, years past, which is a shame because we haven't been doing all 30 for very long. So it would have been fun to like, have more information to uh, to really sort of dig into it. One trend that uh, has continued into this ranking of the farm systems as, is that the Mariners system continues to improve. Looking back over the past several years, it was just uh, two years ago, beginning of the 2018 season, uh, they had just one top 100 prospect, who is uh, a name that I'm hearing quite a bit of now, and Kyle Lewis. But they went from, you know, several years where they had only one or two top 100 prospects from 2014 through 2018 had just uh, either one or two top 100 prospects. And then in 2019 had three at the beginning of this season had five now. Uh, tied with the Marlins for the most in the big leagues with six. And, um, you know, just uh, one of the farm systems that has uh, gone through an, an incredible transformation over the past few years. Yeah, I think uh, it, it has been remarkable. I mean, we touched on it a little bit earlier, just the, you know, Jerry Depoto, they, you know, tried to buy big league talent and then it didn't work and he flipped the switch and uh, they have turned things around and, but it hasn't been just, you know, the, the the trades, like, you know, they've drafted really, really well, I feel in, you know, multiple, multiple years. Uh, and they've gone after college pitching the last, I think, three uh, of their first rounds and brought in, you know, some, some really good talent that way. Logan Gilbert, uh, I think, is better than people even thought. Uh, coming out of the draft, which is why he's moved up our top 100. Uh, George Kirby got bumped off the top 100 in the re-rank, but he's not that far off. But, you know, we haven't seen him pitch. And then they just got Emerson Hancock, as, as Jim mentioned. So uh, yeah, add that to, you know, Kelnick, who they drafted, and then Julio Rodriguez, who they got uh, via their international scouting department. And, you know, they've now got a, a combination of really top heavy in terms of like elite level guys and more and more depth, which is why they continue to kind of move up the rankings. It's not, you know, we have some teams that have a handful of guys, you know, at the top or on the top 100, but then there's a huge drop off after afterwards. That was the case for a little while with the Mariners when they first started bringing in high level talent but they've built things out quite a bit in terms of, of, of adding quantity and not just quality. Yeah. You know, I think in the last two years, you mentioned they're tied with the Marlins with six top 100 prospects. 
that the Mariners and Marlins are the two most far, improved farm systems in the game. And you know, Jonathan, you noted, you know, George Kirby got bumped off the top 100. Noel V. Marte isn't too far from the top 100. And Justin Dunn's been on the top 100. I mean, that's their top nine guys are all top 100 caliber guys. And you look at when they acquired him, you know, they traded for Kelnick in the last two years. Julio Rodriguez, they did sign three years ago, but he hadn't made his pro debut until the summer of 2018 and was even better than people realized. Emerson Hancock was drafted this year. Logan Gilbert was drafted in 2018. Evan White was a holdover. They just traded for Trammell. Kirby was drafted last year. Marte was a 2018 signing. Dunn was part of the Kelnick trade. Cal Raleigh, who's their number 10 prospect, was a 2018 draft pick. I mean, they've, you know, once they kind of flipped that switch from, you know, Jerry DePoto is going to be making trades every five minutes and trying to get, you know, it seemed like the strategy was to get incrementally better at the big leagues every time they made a move. So if you make 100 moves, that might be enough to push you over the top. Now they've embraced rebuilding. Um, the results are apparent. You know, like I said, I, I think you could argue them versus the Marlins over the last two years. But I think those are your two most improved farm systems, two organizations that, that went all in on rebuilding. The team at the top, which I think is no surprise, is uh, the Rays farm system has I'm, I'm looking back at our rankings going all the way back to 2004 and the Rays have just been incredibly consistent basically 15 years now, you know, just using prospect points to get a rough idea. They have, have averaged more prospect points over the past 15 years than any other team, including the Dodgers. You know, and it's interesting because they, they had a lot of draft success and that kind of tailed off at the end of last decade and beginning of this one, which led to a brief downturn at the big league level for them and they're back. But, you know, they, they're just so good at, at getting prospects in so many different ways. I mean, I'm looking – you look at their, their system, you know, Wander Franco, international signee, Brennan McKay, you know, number four overall pick. You know, Vidal Brujan was kind of a under-the-radar international guy. He wasn't a big-ticket guy like Franco was. Xavier Edwards was a trade. Shane Boz was a trade. You know, Brent Honeywell – was an astute, you know, supplemental second round pick. Shane McClanahan was a first rounder who fell in their laps a little bit. Same with Nick Bitsko out of this year's draft. But then Joe Ryan was a unheralded seventh round pick who, you know, nobody could hit at all in the minor leagues last year. You know, Josh Lowe and Greg Jones were first round picks. You know, Ronaldo Hernandez was kind of a, you know, couple hundred thousand dollar international signing. So they, they kind of get guys you know, they, they kind of excel in all of it. You know, they, they make good first round picks, but they also make good later round picks. They they have made some really nice big ticket international signings and also made some international steals. And they're one of the teams because they, they have so few financial resources and lower payrolls. They're one of the few contenders. It's the guy to continually be looking for cheap talent um, and, and looking to acquire prospects and trades rather than, than always trading prospects for veterans. And, and they've done a nice job all the way around. Obviously, uh, that's why they're, they, they have the continued success they do with the limited financial resources they do. We, you know, it's funny because we, we talk a lot about the teams that are able to do it over and, and over again. Um, and we, we give the Dodgers a lot of credit because they – compete every year and have a, a, you know, maintain a strong farm system, you know, from year to year. So the thing that, you know, is interesting to me is that the Rays, yes, they, they have to do it and they don't have the financial wherewithal to 
you know, sign Mookie Betts or to keep guys at the big league level. And, you know, and Jim, you know, one of the things that sort of jumped out to me as you we were talking about their, their ability to draft is uh, like it all ebbs and flows and it may depend year to year, but you go back to that year that was supposed to be like the year that they were going to clean up uh, and that the, the 2011 draft and they got like very say timid, but conservative in how they, and how they drafted. And, you know, some of those guys just didn't pan out. I mean, the best player from that draft was Blake Snell and everyone else has kind of been, you know, I mean, yeah, Mikey Matuk made it to the big leagues, Taylor Guerrero, uh, touched the big leagues, but, you know, they had so many picks in the, in the first, you know, not even the first, yeah, in the first two rounds. And then after that draft, like they sort of kind of got back to what they did best, which was kind of more aggressively going after talent, I thought. And I think that's helped them kind of rebound along with the, the other avenues that, uh, as, as you, as you pointed out, but it's, it's funny because I remember everyone was so excited about that 2011 draft because the Rays had always had this reputation a year after year after year of having great farm systems and drafting well. And they, um, they, they swung and missed a lot in the 2011 draft. And yes, I know that was nine years ago. So they were able to put that behind them and kind of get back to what had made them such a, a model small market franchise for so long. Yeah. I mean, they, they really hit like a, a lull draft wise. And it's funny. Cause I remember I, I was still at baseball America then and, and obviously doing a lot of draft stuff. And I had a bunch of national writers were doing stories on, Oh, the Rays, you know, have this great opportunity, blah, blah. And I remember telling them, you know, look at their track record. The last three drafts has not been good. You know, they, they, they had the really good draft, uh, you know, the series of good drafts. They got David Price with number one pick in 2007 and got Matt Moore in the eighth round and Stephen Vogt. And after that, their draft just fell off the table. They, they, they blew – I mean, he's had an okay career, but they took Tim Beckham over Buster Posey, number one in 2008, and got almost nothing else out of that draft. 2009, they took uh, Levon Washington – Kenny DeCroix, they, they didn't take a player in the first 11 rounds who even got to the big leagues. That draft was a disaster. 2010, leading up to that draft, uh, none of their first four picks made the big leagues. Uh, their best big leaguer was Derek Dietrich, who's been okay. Um, but, you know, they, they just went through this a little, you know, 2011, like you point out, they got Blake Snell. And I guess Mikey Matuk's probably their second best big leaguer, like you were detailing. And, you know, even 2012, nothing significant you know it isn't until the last couple drafts that they got back on track and it really hurt the system because again i mean this is an organization that can't go out and and you know pay going rates for for experienced big league talent they have to do well in the draft but you know it really wasn't until the middle of this decade that they got going again draft wise and and started to turn the corner and it it really hurt them and now i mean they're back to being the the hyper efficient you know rays who you not only have the best farm system in baseball, have the best record in the American League. All right, so we want to move on and talk a little bit about our rookie power rankings and also uh, look at some spectacular debuts that have been made over the past uh, week or so. But before we do that, we're going to pause for a word from our sponsor. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, 
it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com MLB. GetRoman.com MLB. All right, guys. So we put out our, I believe, our third edition of our rookie power rankings. A new feature that we're doing this season where we're tracking all the rookies in baseball and every other week we are ranking them based on their season performance and then in the weeks in between we're just looking at rookies who have had the hottest week uh, in between those rankings and so the way this is panned out I think maybe I, I didn't go back and look at the first two but I'm pretty sure that the way this has worked out for the most part is we've got three hitters who are really kind of running away with things um, in Kyle Lewis, Jake Cronenworth, and Luis Robert. And, uh, and there's a pretty significant drop-off in terms of rookie hitters after that. But then there's a big batch of pitchers and a handful of really effective relievers, relievers who have been basically as dominant as, as any relievers in baseball, I would say. And then also some kind of big name starters in Dustin May and Jesus Lazardo, who have both um, kind of pitched in alternating roles between the bullpen and starting rotation and haven't been steady, but have shown, certainly shown glimpses. But the relievers, uh, Karen Ch- James Karinchak of the Indians, Josh Stallmount of the Royals, and Devin Williams of the Brewers been just extraordinarily dominant. Matt Foster as well has been very, very good, and he rounded out our top 10 list. But guys, the three hitters at the top, you know, Cronenworth would seem to be at this point, I, I would have to think, the uh, front runner for the National League Rookie of the Year. And then in the American League, it's really interesting with Lewis and Robert because I think, you know, a lot of people were convinced that that was Robert's award to uh, taking and, you know, Lewis has, has put up uh, comparable and, and better numbers, but, you know, still uh, several weeks to play. Who do you guys pick at this point? What you think Robert will overtake Lewis or you, you see Lewis tapering off or what, what, what do you think there? I think it's going to be a pretty good battle because early on, you know, we talked about the fact that Lewis was striking out like 45% of his at-bats. And it just seemed like it was going to be impossible to maintain his production. Like, you know, basically every time he put the ball in play, you know, half the time it was an extra base hit, it seemed. But, you know, I noted, like I had this week's uh, rookie writing responsibilities. And, uh, you know, his play discipline has been much better 
over the last two weeks. And that was kind of the one question on Luis Robert was as great a year as he had last year, where he was the first, I, my, my favorite stat that he's the first 30, 30 guy with 300 total bases in the minors since the early sixties was his straight out the walk ratio was really lopsided. And it still is. It, it, it's almost, um, I think, uh, you know, five to one. Um, so if you'd asked me maybe a week ago, I would have, which is with Kyle Lewis's swing and miss said that I would have thought Luis Robert would overtake him. And he's actually tightened that up more than Luis Robert right now. So I think Robert's more talented, but I think it's going to be a pretty good battle down to the wire. Yeah, I agree with that. And cause I think even if Robert, you know, his plate discipline is still needs some work, he, he can do so many things that he's still going to kind of put up good counting numbers and, and stat cast fans are going to love him. But I am now at the point where I'm not betting against Kyle Lewis. You know, every time I think, oh, all right, he's going to slow down or he's getting exposed. He's made some really impressive adjustments, uh, you know, as Jim alluded to, that that really does bode well for him for the rest of this year and and beyond that. Because I think the question always was, especially when he first came up, is like, yes, it's clear the power will play anywhere. Will he hit enough and not get exposed where he can continue to tap into that, that extra base authority and I think the answer is a resounding yes. And then he's also, I mean, he's been playing a lot of center field. Uh, like the knee injury clearly is like way in his rear view mirror. Uh, so he's contributing defensively as well. I don't know how much that contributes to, you know, people voting for rookie of the year, but it doesn't hurt when a guy shows up on highlight reels and things like that. So I, I think it is going to be interesting, but I'm, I'm keeping my marker down on Kyle Lewis. Yeah, so even since we put that story out, Yesterday, Luis Robert went out and doubled and homered last night, added a walk as well. Over his past 10 games, he has five home runs and 11 RBIs, slashing 324, 366, 784. Uh, So he's certainly turned it on as of late. And then on the National League side, mentioned that Jake Cronenworth has kind of is he running away with the National League Rookie of the Year at this point? Yes. Seems, seems like he. Is. I mean, the other crazy thing you talked about how there's so few hitters. <laughs> you look at the rookie hitters, like I guess the second best rookie position player in the National League would be Sam Hilliard, who's kind of a semi-regular with a 7880 ops playing home games at Coors Field. That's not blowing me away and. Like, I don't even know who the, like, Mauricio Dubon might be your third best position player in the National League, and he's got a 639 ops the last time I looked. So, yeah, I mean, unless, I mean, Dustin May has a sub-3 ERA, but he only has, you know, not that, you know, we're picking this off of wins. He's only got one win because it's shorter outings. Um, You know, Tony Gonsolin's got a 0-5-1 ERA and four starts, but, you know, he's averaging less than five innings a start because that's what 2020 is with everything going on. I I think think if the voting were today, I wouldn't be surprised if Jake Cronenworth were a unanimous winner. I'd agree with that. I was going to say, Dustin May is the only guy I think could catch him. He's gotten stretched out more. He's gone six innings in three of his last five starts, and he went five in the other one. But he, I think he's got a, like, he's been, he's been really good, but for, for him and maybe for any like starting pitcher and like in general with this weird year, like for him to 
catch Jake Cronenworth, he's going to have to dominate in September. Like he's going to have to, you know, have some double digit strikeouts and go seven, eight innings and put up zeros and, and things like that as the Dodgers sort of make their way towards the, the postseason. I think that's the only way Dustin May could catch Jake Cronenworth at this point. And he is the only other player that I think has any kind of chance of, of being in the conversation for me. I mean, Jake Cronenworth, I mean, it could win the batting title um, if he keeps this up. And even if he comes back to earth, he's had such a great start. He's probably going to finish the year with an ops around 900 because the last time I checked his ops was close to 1050. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it, it's going to be tough to catch him unless he, unless he just totally collapses and has a horrible September. I, I think it's his award to, to win pretty easily. So in our la- latest rankings, Lewis, number one, Cronenworth, number two, Robert, number three, uh, followed by James Karinczak, Tony Gonsolin, Dustin May, Josh Stallman, Devin Williams at number eight, Jesus Lazardo number nine, and Matt Foster, number 10. Yeah, I know we've talked about basically all of these guys uh, on previous podcasts as, as they've, you know, they're on this list for a reason. One player here in particular I want to talk about and and one pitch of his in particular and we've even talked about this considerably on a previous podcast but Devin Williams uh, he just seems to be getting better and better and his changeup just seems to be getting better and better and more and more effective and the reason I wanted to talk about it is you know I saw Ninja tweeted out a particularly nasty changeup of Williams last night. And when you look at it, and there was a lot of, a, a lot of chatter about this, it doesn't even look like a changeup. It look, you know, can, can we even call this a changeup? It looks like he's throwing a screw. Yeah. I mean, that gets back to, I mean, usually when we have this, this tough to classify thing, it's, it's pitchers calling their breaking ball a slider versus a curveball when it's one or the other. I mean, it's kind of like, I guess, a changeup with screwball action. <laughs> I mean, he's all, he, we talked about this on the podcast when, when we had Mike Rosenbaum on. He was talking about, you know, stat cast, you know, performers with rookies that scouts were noting how good his changeup was back when he was in high school. It was his best secondary pitch then. And you, you don't hear that a lot about high school guys uh, very often. I mean, I think he calls it a changeup because it arrives about 10 or 12 miles an hour slower than his four seamer. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I, I just know I, I enjoy, like I enjoyed looking this up and, and, and updating it now, looking at the stat cast page where <laughs> hitters this season are 0 for 31 against his changeup with 21 strikeouts. You know, I, I guess that's where the changeup concludes the at bat. I mean, it's, you know, he's got to have 58.5% whiff rate on his changeup. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's crazy. The way, the way I figure is he throws it, he can call it whatever he wants. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't, he wants to call it a changeup. It's a changeup. If he wants to come up with like a name for it, by all means, it's that, it's that good. I mean, the, the, the stat cast numbers are insane. Um, in I think terms Mike, of. Mike Rosenbaum came up with a, a name for the pitch. He, he called it God's pitch. Sure. Sure. I works. mean. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I tend to lean a little more agnostic, but uh, I'm, I'll go with it. And the amazing thing is that he throws it so – he actually throws that pitch 
more than any other pitch, like slightly more than his his four seam fastball, which is really really good. And I think I think it was in our Slack channel, Jason. You were even talking about, um, or, or Mike, or we were. I mean, just the fact that you know he'll throw that change up, and you think, all right, here comes another one. And it's not like he he's got like an average fastball. He throws his four seamer like ninety seven, ninety eight up in the zone. And if and if you've just seen that God's pitch, then like you have no chance. You have absolutely no chance. And he throws the change of 49% of the time in the four-seamer, like not quite 45.5% of the time. Uh, so he's mixing those two pitches in uh, almost predominantly. That's all he's throwing um, to tremendous, tremendous success. I thought it was interesting. Uh, Adler noted that normal change-ups are low-spin pitches, i.e. they tumble. He tweeted this out last night uh, in response to – uh, pitching Ninja's uh, video that he posted of this particular 83-mile-per-hour changeup. David said, Williams' changeup is averaging 2,815 RPM, which would be high for a curveball, and that's approximately 400 RPM higher than any other changeup. Uh, he said that, not, not saying that's good or bad, we don't use changeup spin rate like that, but it's... Uh, number behind his unique release. And what's interesting is, I mean, compared to last year, the horizontal movement on the changeup has been pretty consistent, but the it had above average drop last year, and now it's got off the charts drop. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't see why you can't call it a changeup. I mean, the spin rate may be atypical of a changeup, but I mean, it it's like a changeup with excessive drop. I, I, I think he, like I'm with Jonathan, if he wants to call a changeup, it's a changeup. It's, it's, I mean, obviously it's a unique pitch, whatever it is. And so it, it's not a typical anything. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's crazy to watch. And like, I don't know. I mean, I guess the answer is you don't, I was gonna say, I don't know how anybody hits this guy because I mean, how do you hit that pitch? I mean, the ball moves so much anyway, and like, if that's in the back of your mind, then he throws ninety-seven. Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, I, I don't know how anybody ever gets a hit off that guy. They, and they they rarely do. Point zero eight three average against this year. I stacked up his numbers with Karinchak and Stallmans, and Williams has a zero point six four ERA. Stallmans zero point six one. Karinchak has given up a run on each of his past two outings prior to that had only given up one earned run at all this season. So his ERA has ballooned to two, but I think, you know, the, the major difference between these guys is, has been in their command and their control. Um, not so much. He's, he's, uh, I think part of that a bit, but has a 0.94 whip with a point. Uh, with a 136 average against, or Stallmont has a 1.30 whip uh, with a 157 average against. Williams has a 0.71 whip, like I said, a 0.083 average against. So, you know, not only is he getting swings and misses with this changeup, but is, is also just consistently in the zone and not walking batters. Yeah, I mean, to oversimplify things, if I was batting against Karinchak or Stomont, like, which would be a total mismatch anyway, we wouldn't want to see this, you know, like, their stuff's unhittable, but it's not in the zone a lot. 
you know, even in the minors, you know, Karinchak averaged about, you know, four walks per nine innings, you know, still not more than that. Um, you know, Williams, you can't sit there and say, okay, well, I'm going to make him throw me a strike because you're going to be down the count pretty quick. Um, I mean, he's got to be the toughest at bat, I would think, of, of just about any pitcher in the big leagues right now. I mean, obviously, it's different doing it as a reliever versus a starter. But like I said, I mean, you look at the – I mean, it seems like anytime Devin Williams pitches, you know he's going to be on Pitching Ninja. You know, we're going to see some highlights. I don't know how anybody hits that guy. I, it just seems impossible. A couple more guys that proved very difficult to hit in their major league debuts over the past week. Uh, Ian Anderson of the Braves and Yankees right-hander Davey Garcia. Uh, guys, I don't know how much of those debuts you were able to watch, but uh, both – uh, lived up to the hype in their in their first major league starts. The good thing is Ian Anderson comes from a team that I do, and Davey Garcia comes from a team that Jim does a list for. So this we can split this up very. Yeah, you know Anderson has been a guy who has been. It feels like he's been on the radar for for a really long time, even though he was just drafted four years ago, and he was a Northeast kid. And the the thing that sort of interests me with him is that you know he was a guy who started out with having a better feel for pitching than you would think for a, you know, a Northeast high school kid. Um, and the stuff has been really good and his command backed up. So it was a little confusing as to like what he was. You know, he's still kind of projectable. He's still, well, he, he's only 22. Um, you know, people remember he was the number three overall pick in that 2016 draft. And, a little tiny bit of a reach, but not a, lo- a large one as the Braves manipulated their bonus pool uh, in, in that draft as they have in many. Uh, but he's he's really good. And they brought him up really well in alternate camp, and they weren't getting help from some of the other pitching prospects. Kyle Wright's not been able to establish himself. Bryce Wilson's been up and down, and he just came up. And the thing I think that was the most – Impressive was his ability to to command the ball within the zone and use all of his, uh, you know, all of his stuff. He only gave up the one hit, and it didn't come until sixth inning. Uh, it was a homer, but uh, but still, only two walks uh, and the one run over over six innings. I I would imagine he is going to stay in that rotation. You know, as long as he can be in and around the strike zone that effectively, he's going to have a lot of success at the big league level. Yeah, and Davey Garcia, you know, kind of showed, you know, we saw Davey Garcia at his best in his first outing against the Mets, one under and run in six innings, you know, threw some beautiful curves. That's his trademark pitch. It's one of the better curves you're going to see among prospects, high spin rates. It's got power to it. You know, there are times, you know, he, especially last year compared to 2018, where he struggled to land his curveball for strikes and got in a little trouble with walks. Didn't walk anybody against the Mets, looked, looked outstanding. Um, you know, I got asked, I, I did um, MLB Network Radio last night, and they were asking me about the Yankees not making a move at the deadline. And I said, well, I mean, Davey Garcia went out and, and gave him a great start. And they got Clark Schmidt, you know, still on hand as a guy who could, you know, come up and join the rotation at some point. And, and maybe that was part of it. Um, you know, I, I still, you know, with Garcia, I still have some starter versus reliever concern. He's only five foot nine. 163. He's not physical at all. Um, there's some effort in his delivery. I mean, he's athletic, so he makes it work. But, you know, is this a guy who's going to be able to 
take the ball every fifth day and be pitch efficient and get you, you know, five or six innings. I don't know. I, I still, there's part of me that wonders, is this guy going to be a dynamic reliever, you know, pitching eighth or ninth inning for the Yankees, if that's going to be his role, just unleashing the curveball and backing it up with a, with his fastball. But, uh, he looked really, really good against the Mets and, you know, the Yankees, you know, the Yankees have an older team. It's a good team, but they've had a lot of injuries. The rotation's somewhat unsettled and they may need both Davey Garcia and Clark Schmidt down the stretch and in the playoffs to, to go deep in the playoffs. And then another top 100 prospect who is set to make his major league debut tonight is Key Brian Hayes. And guys, I know that this is, a player that we've been looking forward to seeing for, for quite a while and largely because he is one of the very best defensive players in, in minor league baseball. He's one of, let's see, three, four, five, ten, one, ten prospects with a fielding grade of 65 or above. And I guess we've been pretty fortunate to see quite a few of those guys in the big leagues this year. Evan White, Christian Pache, Sean Murphy, Brady Bishop, Laity Tavares, all with fielding grades of 65 or above. But Keith Ryan Hayes set to join the ranks of these young, uh, exceptional defensive players. Tell us uh, what we can expect from Hayes outside of outside of that outstanding defense. Yeah, it's funny. As I was uh, working on the you know on our what to expect story, I was like, I wonder if we were light with that 65 grade, just because everyone talks so much about his his defense. You know, I think he's still a little bit unfinished as an offensive player. You know, he has he missed some time, a little inconsistent. The last two months of last year in AAA, you know, at a really young age, you know, he started really consistently hitting, like in many ways, like he had in driving the ball, a little more power. And had this been a regular year, and I feel like that's like the caveat to everything, you know, maybe he would have gone down to AAA, gotten himself going, he would have been up. On top of everything else, he, he tested positive for COVID, so he missed a few weeks. Uh, I think he, otherwise he might have had a chance to make the, the, the team on, on the new opening day, uh, but didn't even get a chance to work out BNC Park here in Pittsburgh uh, during summer camp uh, because of the positive test. So he's been, you know, with at-bats he's been able to get in those simulated games two or three, he, he's looked good. He makes a lot of contact. Um, I think there's more power to come. You know, he's still adding strength and, and learning how to get to that power without uh, giving up uh, what's been overall a really good approach at the plate. He runs well. I think the thing that really stands out about him outside of the defense, and, and he's a gold glove caliber third baseman right now, is the, his motor. Uh, you know, the, the, he keeps the game slow. So even if he doesn't hit right away, I think he is going to to show that he's kind of nonplussed about the, the the surroundings and being in a big league lineup, and he's going to find ways to contribute uh, with with his defense, with his base running, even if he's not crushing the ball right out of the gate. And I think he will eventually hit plenty, um, but if it you know if it takes him a little while to adjust, I don't think he's the kind of player where it'll snowball on him and it'll be too like tough of a of a hole for him to, to, to dig out of. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a cliche, but he grew up around the game. His dad, Charlie was a long time big leaguer. So I don't think he's going to be faced by anything. And I, I'm with you, John. I, I find him, he's one of those prospects. I always have a tough time. Like when we're doing a top hundred, trying to figure out exactly where I want to put him because I like the bat. I really like the defense. 
I just wonder about the power a little bit. You know, even with the jacked up ball in AAA last year and his stronger finish, he hit 10 home runs and he still has a career slugging percentage under 400 at 399 in the minors. So, I mean, he might be one of those third basemen who's a good player and just gives you value a little bit differently where it's a, a, you know, a real quality glove and he hits 280 and draws his walks and maybe he's a 30 double 12 to 15 home run guy. And that's still a pretty good player. But I, I, I've liked him since we covered him going back to the draft. I want to say, and I, my mind might be playing tricks on me. I want to say he was in the, the Under Armour all America game in 2014. Um, but I, I liked him since since covering him as a Texas draft prospect back in in 2015, and uh, you know I, I guess you know it has not been a I think it's safe to say it's not been a good year for Pirates fans, and that this will this could be one of the highlights of the season, getting to see him play. Uh, uh, although it, it could undermine their chances of, of securing the number one pick in next year's draft. Well, you know I'll, I'll be interested to see with him how the how the bat does play. And I mean, I think I'm starting to starting to think that it's a little unfair to, to judge these guys that are coming up mid season. We've talked about the fact that these guys are coming from, you know, instead of playing their way into the big leagues and, you know, playing at their double a or triple a and, and playing on a day-to-day basis, they're coming from alternate campsites and, you know, where, they're not, they're just simply not playing game situations every day. And you look at the top 100 prospects who are in the big leagues now, and by and large, they've really struggled. Um, Gavin Lux has a 454 OPS, Joe Adele, 505, uh, Joey Bart, 515, Dylan Carlson, 498. Uh, Brendan Rogers, 238. Nico Horner, 563. Um, Jesus Sanchez, 252. You know, with the exception of really Luis Robert, Alec Baum hit for a while right off the bat. He's tapered off a bit, but a lot of these guys really struggling. How much, how much is, is this uh, impacting these guys? I think a ton. And we, like you said, and we've talked about before, you, you don't, you don't even know how these guys are doing. Like, like you can't measure other than, you know, okay. Like it seems like get some good at bats against pitching machine, but like you're not getting four or five plate appearances a day against, you know, double a or triple a pitching, you know, you're getting sporadic, at bats against pitchers and pitching machines and whatever you're, it's just not the same. And then, then all of a sudden it's like, Hey, welcome to the big leagues, Joe Adele. And you're going to see the best pitching you've ever seen in your life. Plus, you know, we got seven inning double headers. So even more so than ever, guys are just maxing it out for one inning and we've got expanded rosters. So we got 16 pitchers on the roster so we can bring in a fresh arm for every at bat. I mean, I've almost gotten to the point where, like, so a guy like Joe Dell, for instance, I guess he'll probably graduate from the top 100 list because he'll get 131 at-bats in all likelihood. But let's say, like, he breaks a finger or something and he doesn't. I'm not going to hold this performance against him. I mean, yeah, he struck out 35 times in 80 plate appearances right now. Doesn't look good. He had a two-home run game. Other than that, he's done almost nothing. But, like, I just don't think it's fair – 
I, I, I just think all these numbers are, are in a vacuum. You know, I mean, you know, Gavin Lux, you know, we, we all thought, you know, he was going to be nationally rookie of the year. And then you know, he either got COVID or was exposed to COVID. So he was late to camp and he, and he only recently got called up and like, I mean, you know, how can Gavin Lux, you know, I mean, last year when he got called up and he played pretty well in September and then he became the youngest player ever to hit a home run in the, in the major league postseason or pinch homer, like, that was coming off playing every day against good pitching and having success and carrying that momentum this year. It's like, okay, you're late to camp and you got off to a slow start at, at alt camp. And then you're not even in a regular routine. And now you're in the big leagues. Like I, I just, I, I just don't think you can take any of these numbers, like read too much into them. I mean, at the, and at this point, this is a September call up. I mean, for a guy like Brian Hayes and in, in a lot of ways for these other guys, it's, kind of an extended September call-up or a first time up. And there are countless examples of guys who, you know, when they first came up, really struggled. Um, you know, the most famous one that I always point to is the guy who's playing alongside Adele in the outfield right now. Mike Trout did not hit when his first time in the big leagues, then went back down and then came back up the next year and was Mike Trout. It's not that anyone didn't think that he was going to be really good because of that thing and, and, and because of that first taste of the big leagues. And I think even more so now because of all these variables, uh, there is even more of a mulligan to, to be considered. And I agree with you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't punish Joe Adele for struggling. Uh, I'm not sure what's going on with him defensively where he's lost at times. Uh, That's a whole different issue, but I think uh, overall uh, you just have to take everything with a grain of salt, uh, given the circumstances of this season. All right, guys, I, I said I was returning this week to rein you in after your terrible job. 75-minute podcast last week, and I failed miserably. That's going to do it for this edition of the Pipeline Podcast. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll be back at you next week. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.